Well, if anybody is here for the first time and you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. Welcome to Alliance Fellowship. My name is Nick, and I get to be the teaching pastor here, and I'm excited to be with you this morning. We are going to continue through the Gospels. We are in work week 13 of going through the Gospels, and we're just getting started. And so I want to start today by telling you a story. It's not a true story. It's a story I made up. Spoiler alert. But it could be a true story. It's a story of a man who was a devout Jewish man living in the first century. He lived a good distance from Jerusalem, from the temple. And so it was quite the journey to go to Jerusalem for him. But like I said, he was a devout man, devoted to God, and he desired to do what was right. He desired to please the Lord, and so he wanted to travel to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple and make a sacrifice to the Lord. So one year for Passover, he decided he was going to do that. He was going to travel to Jerusalem and make the sacrifice. Before he left on the journey, he went out to his animals, to his flocks, and he began to inspect his lambs, because he wanted to find the best lamb that he possibly had so he could offer that lamb to God as a sacrifice. So he goes out, and you've seen people like kind of checking out animals, lifting the tails, doing weird stuff. He's doing all that. He's looking over his lambs, and he finds his best lamb, his lamb that is spotless, his prized lamb, and he decides this is this shall be my offering, my sacrifice to the Lord. So the man and his family pack up and they begin this journey to Jerusalem. And it takes them a number of days. It's not an easy journey. It's dusty, it's hot. And he's journeying. It takes them a few days, like I said. And finally they arrive in the city. And the man is excited to take his sacrifice, the best that he has, to the Lord. But as he's walking into the outer courts of the temple, a merchant yells at him and says, you can't sacrifice that lamb. And the man says, what are you talking about? This is my prized lamb, the one that I chose, the best of my flocks. It is, it is spotless. And the merchant says, no, you can't sacrifice that lamb. Trust me, it's no good. I work here every day. I see the lambs that are able to be sacrificed. I see the lambs that the priests say are good enough, and your lamb is not good enough. He says, but lucky for you, I have lambs here that are pre-screened by the priests, and they are good enough. And so if you buy a lamb from me, then, and only then, can you make a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And so the man, the devout man, says, well, how much do your lambs cost? And he tells him, and the man says, Oh my goodness, are you joking me? That, that is many times more expensive than a lamb should cost. And the merchant says, Well, yes, that's because my lamb is pre-screened by the priest. And so my lamb is only is, is good enough for you to make your sacrifice, but yours is not. These are the only ones that are worthy. We're going to come back to that story in a minute, but 
First, turn to John chapter 2 with me, and you will understand what my story is about. We started John chapter 2 last week. We're going to complete it this week. It is a very famous story. I know I say this all the time, but it's always true. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold their pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And maybe you've heard this story before. We call it the cleansing of the temple. And Jesus actually does it twice, once at the very beginning of his ministry and once towards the very end of his ministry. And this is the beginning. He goes into the temple and he cleanses. And this brings us back to our story. This devout Jewish man wanted to do what was right. And he would have been the exact kind of person that was the reason for Jesus getting so angry in this moment. Because he comes to the temple to make an offering for the Lord, and somebody stands in his way and tries to hinder his worship. Not only hinder his worship, but make money financially off of his desire to serve God. These people were standing in the courtyard, and they were ripping people off. They would do things exactly like in my story. They would tell people, your animal is not good enough. You have to buy my animal for exorbitant prices. Or they would also get them coming and going, because then they would pull out their money from their local land, and and they'd say, oh, sorry, I can't take your money. You have to go exchange your money for the temple shekel, But then they would only give them like 80 or 90 cents on the dollar to exchange that money. And so they're ripping them off, coming and going. And they're trying to take advantage of people who are only there to seek to worship God. It's a scam. They're lying. They're manipulating. And most of the time, if not arguably every time we see Jesus get angry in the Bible, it is a situation like this where somebody is trying to hinder other people from getting access to God, to worship God. Remember, anger is not a sin. How you use your anger can become very sinful. Whenever somebody steps in the way of a worshiper seeking to worship God, Jesus becomes angry. We see this in this story of Jesus cleansing the temple. The merchants are placing an obstacle in between God and his children who have come to be with him, and Jesus blows up the situation. Like I said, this is one of my favorite stories because it says not only did Jesus drive out the merchants from the temple, but did you notice it said that he made a whip of cords. 
That means that Jesus had to have the forethought to walk around and look for some cords, pick some cords up, tie them up. So like this wasn't just like a moment of rage. He thought about it. I'm going to make me a whip. And then he goes and he starts driving out oxen and sheep. And it, it, it just it's amazing to me. So next time somebody asks you, what would Jesus do? Just understand that fashioning a whip and driving out some animals is not outside of the realm of possibility. Okay? Be careful with that. You can take that very wrongly. But he didn't just react. He was angry, but he was righteously angry. Notice he does not become uncontrolled in this. There's an interesting part of the story where he's, he's got his whip and he's pouring out money and he's hitting the oxen and all this stuff. He's driving out. But then he comes to the birds. Did you notice this? There's pigeons in little cages. And he tells the pigeon merchants, get your birds out of here. He doesn't just walk over and like smack the cages and kill the birds. He's just like, take them away. Right? He's not freaking out and just enraged. He is intentionally doing something. And he's angry, but he's not sinning in his anger. We see sometimes Jesus react in anger. He's not always gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Sometimes he gets a little wild. <laughs> we see this many times when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. Maybe you know the stories. We people like the Pharisees, and they're acting like they're so much better than everybody else. That nobody could possibly be as holy as them. And so they start to talk bad about other people and try to hinder them from worshiping God. And Jesus gets so angry with them, righteously angered, that he calls them things like hypocrites, fools, broods of vipers, and my favorite, whitewashed tomb. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? Sometimes they would go and they would paint the cemeteries so that they look really nice, whitewash them. But guess what's still in the cemetery? Death. Decay. Nothing. It says you're like a whitewashed tomb. You've painted yourself up to look really nice on the outside, but inside there's nothing but death. That's a pretty harsh thing to say, somebody. But for them it was absolutely true. There are times in the scriptures where we see the power of of Jesus, and we realize that sometimes becoming more like Jesus means that we're not going to just stand by and watch people be mistreated. The disciples are watching all of this unfold, and one of them, it doesn't tell us who, one of them remembers a verse all the way back from Psalms that says, he's speaking about the Messiah that is to come, and it says, zeal for your house will consume me. And it tells us they make a connection there, that they realize what Jesus is doing right here is very messianic. It's speaking about that Messiah that we've been waiting for. And all of this, I want you to see all of these things that Jesus does in the beginning of his ministry are pointing his disciples more and more towards this is who we've been waiting for. Pointing to him being the Messiah. They make this connection and it gives them an even deeper faith. And this whole story establishes <clears throat> 
something for us. Jesus is deeply passionate about what is going on in the house of the Lord. And he will step in and he will get rid of things that are keeping his children from being able to worship in freedom. Keep this in mind. This story shows us the passion of Jesus for the house of the Lord. Now let's read the second part, the last part of this chapter. Verse 18 through 22 is the second part of this story. Jesus does this. He cleanses the temple, but then the Jews respond to him. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, this is much, much later, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Jews basically look at him and say, Who do you think you are? What makes you think you have the authority to come in here and to start driving out the merchants and causing all this ruckus. And Jesus gives them an odd response. At least it would seem odd to them. He answers by saying, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And they think he's talking about the building, the the middle, the, the temple. And so they say, this temple has been here for hundreds of years, and it's been in the middle of a massive remodel for 46 years, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? Because the temple had been there for hundreds of years, and it's still not finished. It won't be finished for another 20 years just in time to get destroyed. They say, you're going to raise it up in three days? But it tells us he's not talking about the building, is he? He's talking about himself, that he is the temple. Much, much later, after his death and his resurrection, when he comes back to life after three days, they remember this whole interaction, and it gives them a deeper faith in everything that Jesus is saying. Okay, so we have two parts of this story. The first part, Now, don't miss this. I see some of you guys that have been in camp. You're checked out. You're tired. It's late in the summer. Okay, I get it. Any of us, if you miss this next part, you're missing the whole crux of the story. Okay? Come back to me. Okay. The first part of the story, Jesus is telling us what kind of things should and should not be going on in the temple of worship. And he's telling us it is a place not for merchants, not for ripping people off, not for getting in the way of worship. It is a place that is meant to be a place of worship. That is the temple's purpose. Okay, that's part one. But then part two comes, and Jesus tells us, the temple is not the building. It's not the structure that is man-made, The temple 
is the body. So we put these two pieces together. Jesus is telling us, this is what should be taking place in the temple. And the temple is you. You are the temple of worship in which worship should be taking place. Not all of these other things that get in the way of worship. See, back in the Old Testament days, they believed that the building was the house of God. It was where the presence of God dwelt. There was one room inside the temple called the Holy of Holies, and they believed that the very presence of God dwelt on the earth in that building. But then Jesus comes and he changes everything. And if you remember the story of his death, he dies on the cross and it tells us that the curtain inside the temple that separates the Holy of Holies tears in half. And it's this moment that we see the presence of God is not in the building. It is in God's people. And if God's people are the temple, and then Jesus tells us what's supposed to be going on in the temple, and he's also telling us what should not be going on in the temple, this story is so much deeper than just Jesus grabbed a whip and smacked some oxen. It is a story about who we are and who God has made us to be. We are God's house. The New Testament tells us as well, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Hebrews chapter 3. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So if you are a follower of Christ, then you are the temple of God. That means that we are to be houses of worship. Our hearts, our souls, our minds, all of them are houses of worship to the Lord. And nothing should come between us and the importance of God in our lives. Nothing, even good things, should not take that place of supreme value in our lives. And people struggle with this. I'm sure you know this. People struggle. I've known Jesus, like, a week ago was 29 years since I met Jesus when I was 13 years old at summer camp. And I have struggled many times in my life to make sure that God retains that position of supreme value in my life. And I'm sure that that has been the case for many of you. I can look back on my life and I can see moments in my life. Oh, don't break stuff. I can look back at my life and see when other things 
took that position all the way back to middle school. I was a teenage boy, so let's be honest, it was girls. It was, I love, I mean, especially when they wear pink dresses, like so, so amazing. Girls took that position of primary value in my life. I would go to the skating rink every Friday night, and I would show the girls how good I was at skating. Not rollerblades, quad skates. And I could jump and do fast. All kinds of good things were going on. I would try to get them to do the couple skate with me to slow 90s music. Awesome. But at that point in my life, they became the most important thing. And then I got to high school, and my whole life revolved around sports. I don't know if any of you were like that, but I just, my whole life was sports. I lived in the weight room. I drank creatine with grape juice every day. I, I, that's all I cared about. And it became that thing that had the supreme value in my life, so much so that when I was a senior in high school and I broke my hand, one of my metacarpals in half during a football game, and I couldn't play football anymore, I had this massive identity crisis of like, who am I if I am not a football player? My whole identity, my whole supreme value of life was wrapped up in this. And then, you know, also this. Yeah. And then you get to college and everything is about new things. It's about going after that diploma, right? Everybody's just pursuing the piece of paper to justify everything that's going on in your life. And then, and then I got to college and then I, then I fell in love with one of these and, and we got married and that was awesome. But I had to make sure that that didn't take that supreme value in my life where God was supposed to be, because I'm meant to be a temple of worship to God, not a temple of worship to Katie or to sports, or to my diploma, and then we get older and we have to get a job so that we can, so we can make some money, so that we can have all this stuff, and so then money becomes that thing, and then, and then we're like, oh man, I want some really cool cars, so this is my Michelangelo Ninja Turtle truck, it's awesome. We got to do that, we got to do all these things, and then you get a little older, and you got to have the house. You need the house, and you got the, you got the girl, and you got the car, and the sports, and the money, and the diploma, and you have all these things, and, and then you, you want some toys to play with, and all these things in your life just becomes revolved around all of these things. And they start to take the place of God. Even though we are meant to be a temple of worship to him, we start to get inundated with all of these other things. And I haven't even got into the things that are blatantly sinful. These are just the things that we can look at and say, these are good things. But they take his place. We are God's house. And we are meant to be filled with worship as living sacrifices for him. And it's not because God is up there worried, like, oh no, they're not worshiping me. I don't feel good about myself. He's not self-conscious. He cares about this because he cares about us. And he knows that if these things, which are fleeting and become, and can be taken away at any moment, like 
sports was for me. Suddenly our identity is fixed on those things and not on him, and we're lost. Or the economy tanks in 2008, and everyone says, like, that was my whole world. But the car breaks down, or the, the girl leaves, or you get a degree and then realize it was worthless. Whatever it is, you build your life around these things. Rather than God, you will be left wanting. And Jesus leaves us, he loves us way too much to let us stay in the place where our hearts are turned away from him and turned towards other things. And so you and I need to not be surprised when Jesus comes in to our lives and says, Nope. Because many of them are good things. But they were never meant to have the supreme value in our lives. They were never meant to be the things that we worship. They're just details. And God often blesses us with amazing things. I'm blessed with an amazing wife and an amazing family. I was blessed to go to school and to get a degree and I have a home and I have all these things. But when they become the object of my worship, then I am no different than the merchants saying this is what matters, not that. And we need to not let those things take place because the very Holy Spirit of God dwells in you richly. What are these things for you? What are these things that have taken the place of supreme value away from God? What are the things that own your mental and physical and emotional energy? What are the things that you put all of your resources towards, whether it's your time or your willpower or your money? What, if it's not God, is the thing or person that has taken over that place on the throne of your life? I think every one of us needs to answer that question. And we need to realize that if we have gotten our priorities out of whack, then we need to return to knowing who Jesus is, that he is the only one who should be sitting on the throne of our lives. Amen? You pray with me?